Well, thanks for being here, folks. How's my volume? Got some thumbs up. Great. So, uh, something that's been on my mind that um, wanted to bring into a talk. I named this. Sometimes start with titles because uh, it helps me unfold a theme. And uh, the title for this talk is "How to Not Let Donald Trump Drain the Light from Our Souls." And so, I'm bet some of you watched the debate. And how was that for you?、Um, what did you see? About your practice, did you have one at that time? And if you did, how did it serve? And when did it disappear? Or why? Why did it disappear? So I watched as different parts of me came up.、And、this is somewhat of a sequence, though I think there's some、uh, simultaneity. So I was watching this with my partner last night. And so the first thing was、uh, shock, and then、um, sickness at the lack of dignity. Then there was shame, and there was indifference, and there was a part of me I call fear and flee the country. And then there was not knowing, and then there was.、Um, I wrote down unbreakable wholeness or contact with something, in per, a particular way of knowing, and then、um, renunciate, and then、uh, solidarity and potential in the apocalypse. So I want to unfold that, just、um, to share how this was practiced for me and. Maybe there'll be some、uh, resonance for you. So first, I'm shocked. You know, naturally, we have standards, and we have shared cultural standards, and we have personal standards, and we have a general sense, you know, a code of decency that I think, for most of us, is、uh, universal, and that seems to be rapidly shifting. That seems to not be、uh, as widely as accepted, at least as much as I, I thought it was.、Uh, so my initial hit when I tuned into the debate was shock. That this is the leader of the free world entrusted with immense influence, and this is someone that millions support and celebrate. I also had shock that there was no、uh, structure to hold the discourse from chaos. And so, I think one of the things I learned from、uh, Chozen Roshi is curiosity about states of mind, about, about where they、uh, come from, why they arise. And so, you know, surprise and shock is one of those states of mind. You know, what is it? What What's happening with that state? And Where I'm at with it now is it's when what's happening collides with our belief of what should or can happen. Surprise or shock? Maybe shock is a stronger version of what's happening colliding with our general experience of what tends to happen. 
And then in the, in the Dharma, there's a tension between expecting the world to be based in delusion. You know, that's the basic teaching about samsara. The world is based in delusion. It's kind of a sober acceptance of that, that human beings and their societies and their institutions are animated by greed, anger, and ignorance. And that's basically the way it is. And so there's a tension between that teaching and this reasonable expectation that people will be decent. Um, a line from Jizza from the Liquid Swords album came to mind. I don't know if any of you remember Jizza. This is a great album. But he said, I see wisely, as if nothing ever surprised me, lounging between two pillars of ivory, I'm lively. That, that line about I see wisely, as if nothing ever surprises me, really struck me as part of the, the, the training of, of Dharma. So in a sense, there's some information for us in shock. At that moment, my mind is not including the whole range of truth, or I wouldn't be shocked. Because this is something that human beings do. And at the same time, it's like our humanity is sparked or our heart is, is sparked by, by seeing this, this general code of decency being, being ruptured. So then as I continue to, to watch and I really incline towards staying present because I felt the potential or the, the movement to check out, as I continued to watch and stay present, I began to feel ill. And I heard that from a, a number of folks that they found uh, bearing witness to this um, sickening. Our bodies uh, responding. And is it because when we are uh, practitioners and in Zazen or other practices, we rest and inhabit Dharma, we come into contact with the potential for dignity that we all have. We come to know in ourselves and in others like how a human being can be and how we fall short. And we start to see more and more when, when we fall short. So the sickness can be that we witness that not being fulfilled and actually the opposite being transmitted to people and our being vibrates with the wrongness of it. And for, for some of us, that was um, some sickness. So I still had access to some spaciousness at that point. And you know, I reminded myself not to collapse into any state or emotion so I could really witness the spectacle. And then when I did that, I noticed the sickness uh, moved through. It arose, it existed, and it passed. And I, I tend to think of this, my interpretation of this with the practice and emotions is that if their message is cleanly delivered, or if their message is heard, then they tend to move on. But if they can't quite make the delivery, if that's stymied in some way, it tends to um, recur or kind of swirl in an eddy. So um, the next thing that happened as I continued to watch was some shame at being an American. And 
There's a, a paradox in Zen practice. So on one hand, one of the, the deep gifts of it is that we free ourselves from identity by holding them lightly. And we, we come to understand that no identity encompasses the whole of what we are, not, not the ones we like and not the ones we wish people wouldn't put upon us. No identity uh, encompasses or really pins down um, what we are. And one of the you know, essential Buddhist teachings reflections on experiences. This is not me. This is not myself. In a way, it's via negativa, or it's a neti neti, as they teach in the Hindu traditions. Whatever arises and disappears is not me, because I am not that which arises and disappears. So no identity really hits the mark, and also, with practice, we open the ability to more fully inhabit the identities we wear in everyday life. It's something like, it's not me, so therefore I can be this fully because I'm not limited to it. I can play this role in this moment. I can sometimes be whatever people think I need to be, or whoever they think I are, because I know it's only a tiny slice. So in uh, bearing witness to Trump, who for so many Americans is an emblem of their state of mind and wishes, or at least resonating with an aspect of their minds and wishes, I experience an impulse to disavow and to dissociate from this national identity. Basically, I don't want to be in this group and I don't want to be associated with this group. So the question for me is, how do I reconcile this deepest truth that is unbound by culture, place, and time, and even by the body, and the very local and historical karmic shapes we're living out and impacted in? You know, as much as it's a limited identity that I'm an American, it's, it's still a truth. It's still a truth that if I were to just try to avoid or ignore that, that's, that's spiritual bypassing, which is an important, important term. In my practice, something that's emerging is a, is a new understanding uh, for me, and that is that inner paradox or tensions don't necessarily need to be reconciled. So embracing rather than resolving paradox, uh, being larger than dualities. So sometimes if I felt an inner conflict, I thought that I, if I figured out which side of me was right or um, which place I should align with, then that is what peace is. Rather, this is, is just holding what seems like paradox. So what happens when we allow seemingly incongruent or at odds parts of ourselves or experience to just be incongruent or just be at odds? If we do that in the context of awareness, I was using the word host in some of the reminders during meditation. That's um, a classic thing in, in Zen teaching, and it has different meanings, but one of them is that which fields experience that which allows anything to happen in the first place. 
So what happens if we can context paradox in that which fields and has no identification? So the next thing that um, arose for me after this feeling of shame and this kind of inner pinballing of, well, I'm not an American. I don't have to you know, be invested or identified with this. And yes, yes, you are. Um, this indifference arose for me. And this is my, my personal poison. And sometimes I think this is humanity's deepest poison. It's definitely a national poison that institutionalized and interpersonal racism has remained intact long enough and strong enough for our president to embody the outlooks he does and be celebrated by millions from my vantage point can only be the consequence of deeply ingrained indifference. So in response to the spectacle and the shame, I noticed the way checking my heart out was seeping in. It's something that it's taken me a while to really notice that that happens in my being when certain things arise, that it's like it almost kind of sneaks away. I'm not looking and it goes and hides in the corner that I, I disinvest my heart presence in what is unfolding. And the, the inner dialogue was, was, um, you know, there's two things I noticed. One is, well, this is just the way the world is. And then the other uh, thought was, well, I'm powerless. I'm powerless. These thoughts accompanied this sneaking away of the heart. Those have a grain of truth. They have a grain of truth, but, but retracting the heart from the way the world is isn't, isn't our practice. Another indifference narrative I catch is, I'm glad I will only be around for three or four more decades. I don't know if anybody has that one, but you know, that, that rings true to part of me, but it also is pretty selfish, right? Because we know that our, our children or our friends' children and their children are not going to have um, that luxury, but they're going to be coming into this world we can or cannot be indifferent to. And anyway, it may not be true that we won't be around. We may very well be around in another form. Um, that we die and we just kind of, an off switch happens is just a belief. So, indifference. In Dharma, we recognize this dynamic that we call samsara. And Lama Michael says, when it's not working, it's working. That there is this profound truth, and this is the way the world is. But we don't disinvest. We don't disinvest because that is also samsara, the disinvesting. It turns on greed, anger, and indifference. Or we do invest, disinvest, but then we see that, which is at least my experience, is I have to keep reinvesting, keep, keep deciding. And I think I'm deciding more and more that I'm going to keep my, my skin in the game as best I can at this time. So with indifference, there's the energetic withdrawal and re-engagement. 
There's the re-inhabitation of the body and heart that we do. And I experience as doing a, a practice of correction, uh, of coming back into phase. It's almost like um, the soul drifts apart from the body. There's this, this fuzzy, disinhabited feeling. And that's, that's vital because if I withdraw from the heart, then my fuel for response drains away. So I, I found myself coming back into, into myself and um, my partner mentioned something about you know, really wanting to leave the country. And I was connecting with that, that mind state. And when I came back into my body, I basically encountered the plain fact of, of being afraid, just afraid of, of uh, the potential potential for this country and the world to be a place that uh, people are not welcome in, that I'm not welcome in, that people don't want to invest in, that I don't want to invest in, um, plain fear that it will be difficult, if not impossible to bear. Part of my practice is really learning to inhabit fear like on a somatic level. I think part of many cisgendered men's conditioning in this culture is that it's not okay to be afraid. It's not okay to experience fear. And it's really not okay for other people to see that. It's not okay for our partners to see that, our children to see that, and certainly not other men. And so I feel this is a vital part of our practice. You know, and one of the best things that can happen is in a safe container of Zazen, a manageable upsurge of fear so that there's, a, a, there's the possibility to more deeply inhabit that and, and have some space around it. For me, I put fearlessness on the shelf until I can fully inhabit fear. That's the, that's the training for me is not, not being unafraid, but training and being able to fully inhabit the fear. And maybe they're the same thing. I don't know. When people are, are fearless, does it mean they don't experience it? Or does it mean that their relationship to it has shifted? So I think if Donald Trump had this skill to inhabit his fear and to be steady in that inhabitation and to really understand its nature and its source, then we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing. Imagine um, everything with this, imagine everyone with this skill. And part of the beauty of the mindfulness movement and this collective democratization of the tools of the Dharma is that this simple skill is so, is so potent. And in a way it has life or death impact. The police are afraid, the policed are afraid. Men and women who abuse their parents or spouses or children are afraid. We just can trace fear and the inability to understand and be in relationship with fear to so much, to so much that unfolds that we know is, is off. So out of fear of what 
the society can become or the potential for violence and uh, devolution, um, I had the thought, how can I get out of here? No, and my ancestors had this thought. My great-grandmother left um, Europe from persecution coming to uh, America. And their fear led to me having relative safety and opportunity. So it's not, it's not a completely, um, there's some wisdom in this thought. You know, is this, is this safe? Is this a place to invest in? Or is there a better way to uh, live my life? But here is where indifference and fear feed on each other because in my fear, I tune out. In my fear, I tune out and I don't attend to those who can't flee or who don't want to disinvest, disinvest. So the fear and the indifference can work together and they, they spawn a false certainty. So I found myself shifting into um, some quality of not knowing. And the not knowing was partially um, because I wanted to offer uh, something to uh, my partner who was feeling it really deeply and feeling really distressed. It, it seems to me a human quandary there is a human quandary between overestimating our ability to predict how things will unfold and ignoring the trend of how cause and effect is unfolding. You know, we think we know what's going to happen. It's not quite right. And yet we can totally put our heads in the sand and really not see what we are actually seeing. So part of the quandary is, is binary thinking. I mean, in your heart of hearts, is it true for you that you know, Trump being reelected is entirely bad and him losing is entirely good? Is it really that, is it really that simple? Or is reality more nuanced? No, there are, there are um, of course, the negative sells advertising space in newspapers. There are, some, there are some interesting statistics that can round out how we're feeling about what's going on. You know, the number of nonprofits and activist organizations that have sprung up and swelled in numbers during this presidential term is huge. And from my read, that far outnumbers the increase in white nationalism, that the people actually being um, galvanized and cl clarifying values and getting involved is higher on that side than those who are becoming more uh, magnetized into violence. So from one view, the last four years are a humanitarian disaster. And from another, it's exactly what has sparked this movement that has so much potential. And people um, listening and really being willing to look at the uh, violence of America. There's a um, famous koan um, in response to um, a student asking about uh, practice. 
And how do we do it? Um, Non-sin, this Zen master said, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. You know, I could say um, certainty. Certainty is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can it be talked about on a level of right and wrong? So not knowing is is not a position we take to free ourselves from discernment. Sorry, I'm managing the weight room here. Okay, thank you. It's not a position we take to avoid looking carefully at a situation. It's not a it's not a position. That's the blank consciousness kind of not knowing. So what does a practice of not knowing offer us in this situation? Well, there's space for more than our fear and reactivity. There's space for more than pessimism. And there's space to see possibility. There's possibility we can't see if the mind is crowded with certainty that this is an entirely disastrous situation and the country is going to hell. If I glom onto that view, then other possibilities, other views simply don't have room to arise. So not knowing rather than a, um, an escapism is, is a place of possibility. So another thing that comes up for me when I encounter or watch something like this spectacle of last night is some part of me really wants to give myself to the practice 100%. And I have uh, some of that uh, karma. And sometimes it feels like the most uh, generous and honest response to the world. And it rises up in times of, of stress and fear for me. And now I see it less as I need to do that. I need to become a full-time renunciant yogi and more as an emblem of a deep truth. That I feel this samsaric display, the spectacle of 2020 highlights the need for a real refuge. And something resonates in me that spiritual practice is the ultimate solace. That in a sense, it's something that can be never taken away from you. And it's so, uh, and so it's of deepest value. Now, I, I wonder if I would be able to be somebody in um, situations like uh, some of the Tibetans who in the midst of... Uh, the Chinese uh, barbarism really maintained their deep faith and were able to practice deeply in the, in the midst of that. Is that, is that uh, something that only the most uh, gifted practitioners can touch? Or can we all touch that if we really have the faith to turn towards it when things get difficult? So the impulse of full-on practice 
for me can be saying this practice won't fail you or that all of these difficulties um, have the potential to really fertilize awakening. And perhaps when I'm most honest, what it's saying to me is get down to it while you still can. Get down to it while you still can. Who I can and will be when things unravel, whether that's my personal life, my body, my culture, the inevitable exigencies of life, who I can and will be is dependent on how I've lived, the practice I'm doing now and have done. And of course, that's supported by others, but who I will be is being co-created by my actions day after day in the present moment. And these actions are co-created by previous versions of myself. So there's, I believe, something that we touch in the practice that we don't even have to necessarily know that we touch it. We don't even act, we don't have to know that we know it, and yet it still serves us. And this aspect of practice offers so much more than, than coping. We open up a perspective or a vantage point that experiences suffering very differently. You know, in a sense, it's something that almost shouldn't be spoken about and yet needs to be spoken. For, for centuries, ancestral teachers have been teaching that there is, there is a going beyond suffering. There is a, an element of being that does not enter into samsara, that is not ever caught. I wrote a, um, I wrote a poem. And of course, my experience of this is very, very limited. Um, limited by my, my safety and, and privilege and level of experience. But nonetheless, the experience is something I have a deep faith in. I make an offering of myself to the sky, egoism undone in the openness of meditation, smiling in direct experience, not limited to a body, a mind, a dream, a desire. I relax back into the shine of presence, call it the sunlight of undefinable love. I thrive on the washing away of encrusting beliefs of how I and this moment should be, an alchemy sneaking a peek at the mercur mercurial play, an alchemy sneaking a peek at the mercurial play of perfection with no opposite. To my binary mind, this truth is offensive, absurd, and definitely hidden. I gratefully take sick leave from dualistic certainties, and then I really breathe, relaxing back into the compassionate shine of nowness. So after the debate, my um, girlfriend and I are sitting there together and are, are shaken up, are, are holding our uh, disturbance. And 
the first thing I notice is I feel and I see how our fear has disconnected us. And there's some sense that, that um, we've shrunk into self-concern. And for me, one of the things that makes life worth living, that authenticates the whole mess, is the flow of love. Giving love, receiving love, working on my limitations to giving love, working on the limitations of my receiving it. And so seeing how easily lack of awareness and identity with contracted states of mind leads to disconnect, I appreciated my luck in being able to see how that happens. Through, through our training, we can see how that happens and we can appreciate, sometimes just in hindsight, how the impulse to come back to presence is uh, habituated. So I recognize it's connection and it's love that keeps me from despair. It's connection and love that keeps me from being a smaller uh, version of myself. So I found myself um, telling my partner what I really needed to hear was that there, first of all, there are so many good people we are connected with. There's so much care. There's so much sanity. There's so much practice happening. And because those are our values and our practice, we have those connections. And there's no reason to believe that they will vanish. And that because of those connections and because of so much um, sanity and care, we will be okay. Materially, maybe not. I don't know. Emotionally, could be rocky. But spiritually, yes, we, we will be okay. We will be okay as long as we keep a bead on this, this truth. And maybe we will be better than okay. So whatever happens in our life, the intentions and states of heart and mind we have most, most nurtured come forth. Whatever intentions and state of mind we have most nurtured will come forth, imperfect, imperfect as they may be. And we will have support and resonance from those who are like-minded if we look for it. Support and resonance in staying larger than our fear, and staying rooted in the principles of Dharma, and inclining towards whatever the word love uh, means for you. <laughs> 